turn in our Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Colossians together in a series entitled, uh, Give Me Jesus. And as we're turning to Colossians chapter 2, just a reminder that on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, uh, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, not all in one night, but uh, we do it progressively, and we'll be studying the book of uh, Gospel according to Luke tonight, 6 o'clock, and we'd love to have all of you uh, join us for that. Colossians chapter 2, we'll pick things up in verse 11. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which also, uh, you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having uh, forgiven uh, you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, excuse me, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for uh, the uh, unshakableness of the foundation that you place within our lives by your Holy Spirit and through your word. And we thank you for this word that while the world changes all around us, not only does your word not change, but your faithfulness to your word in our lives doesn't change either. And we're so thankful to be able to build our lives on your truth as we live in a world uh, that is so enamored uh, with lies, so enamored by what is the easiest path, the most pleasurable path, whatever the consequences are, or the payment that might ultimately come due on that path. We thank you for the blessing of knowing you, the blessing of obeying you, the blessing of knowing your word. And Lord, we pray that as we study these verses this morning, that you would give us an understanding of uh, who you are, an understanding of who we are in your Son, and an understanding of ourselves, and, and uh, what you want us to know about our Christian life, and in this case, how to protect the simplicity that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we've seen the Apostle Paul, he writes this letter to the church at Colossae in order to correct and, uh, and uh, push back on uh, false teaching that has been introduced into the church there by false teachers. And it's a significant kind of thrust that they've made within uh, that uh, uh, church. 
And ultimately what they were teaching at the time that Paul wrote this letter, uh, these things were in germ form as I've stated each time in this uh, section of the book of Colossians of what in the second century would solidify into a heresy known as Gnosticism. The idea that somehow we can improve upon Christianity by uh, human tradition or by uh, legalism or by a uh, pseudo-supernatural spiritualism uh, or by just simply accommodating the flesh altogether and uh, accommodating man's carnality or sin. And this morning we'll come to Paul's instruction concerning uh, the second of those things, and that is legalism. And again, I want to emphasize that, uh, <clears throat> that as we handle this, that it's important for us to realize as Christians in the United States of America in the summer of 2020 that all of this is really, really important. And the reason that it is, as I mentioned last week, so that we don't become the proverbial frog that is uh, boiled to death in the boiling water simply because the water has brought, been brought to a boil so slowly. What Paul addresses here in this section of the book of Colossians is very, very dangerous to Christianity. And it, it, is, it represents a very pronounced attack upon the Christianity uh, that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father in order to provide to uh, mankind. We can become so used to man's wisdom and philosophy being added to Christianity today as Americans. We can become so used to legalism uh, having, such, uh, having made such uh, massive inroads into large portions of Christianity as it's uh, 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 practiced here that we can begin to think that they're just kind of nothing. They're no big deal and, and uh, no need for us to make any big deal out of it either. Well, we may not make a big deal out of it outwardly, but it needs to be a big deal in our hearts where we recognize that these things are an absolute threat to what God wants to do in our lives and what he wants Christianity to be in this world. Now, the, in short, these verses that we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul, he warns us that legalism has absolutely nothing to add to Christianity and that to engage in legalism is to spend my life uh, focused upon the shadows rather than uh, uh, the spiritual substance of a relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus and all that he has provided to us uh, spiritually. Let's begin by considering what legalism is and what it produces in uh, human lives. In terms of what legalism is, at the time of Jesus' public ministry, uh, Judaism was uh, dominated by two major sects or groups. One was the Sadducees and one was the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were the uh, theological uh, liberals uh, of their day within Judaism. And the theological liberal, both then and today, is the person who takes away from the Word of God. And they minimize or they explain away 
or they deny or disregard the clear teaching and demands of God's Word. And to them, the Bible is uh, more a book of suggestions from God rather than being commandments. And anything that kind of displeases them uh, or they, uh, they don't quite agree with, they simply uh, disregard or they attempt to uh, explain away. And uh, this problem is very, very prevalent today uh, in, in our country in, and within Christianity, not only in the lives of individual Christians, but prevalent even uh, among pastors, where there seems to be this uh, sense of, of freedom to take what clearly what God demands within His Word of us, and when it doesn't fit with the times, doesn't fit with the culture, um, it doesn't fit with the flesh, or somehow it'll cost us in some way to explain it away and to uh, disregard it. At the other extreme of Judaism, there were the Pharisees, and they were the legalists in, in Judaism. And the religious legalist is one who takes a simple command in the Bible, and then they add all of their own man-made ideas and traditions to that command in order to make that simple command of God uh, stricter and more demanding uh, than uh, God intended it to be. And whatever God declares in his word, they will always take that uh, uh, at least a step further. And so the rationale is something like this. Well, if God commands us in his word to do X, then 3X must be three times better. Or 10x must be 10 times uh, better. And they then come up with all kinds of man-made laws by which a person might uh, really show or really prove that they're really serious about God and uh, to really prove their, their love uh, for God. And legalism in our country, uh, beyond kind of the doctrinal things that Paul's going to talk about here in a moment, but legalism has been expressed in terms of whether women can wear makeup as Christians or the length of men or women's hairs, hair or outward apparel or whether women can wear uh, pants or you can what you can eat, what you can drink, can you own a TV, can you own a radio, can you listen to them if you do own them, and, and these kind of, uh, of things. It is important to realize and to not confuse obedience to God's commandments with legalism. Keeping God's commandments is not legalism. Uh, obeying God's commandments is obeying God's commandments. Legalism is obeying man-made rules. This is not referring here, Paul's rebuke of legalism is not in any way a rebuke of being obedient to God's commandments as they're stated in, in the Word of God. Now, one of the many problems with legalism and legalists is that they uh, never quite know when to stop. And uh, because once you abandon the Bible uh, as a necessary uh, basis or foundation for your beliefs and for your demands, 
Once you feel free to add to the Word of God, you no longer feel uh, the need to keep your personal opinions uh, to yourself and to your own personal Christian life and your own preferences, and, and you fe- fail to uh, keep them restrained by uh, the Word of God. The Word of God is no longer strictly our uh, standard for our practice and, and our doctrine, and we begin to feel that we can uh, uh, do to the Word of God uh, with, it, the, the, with the same freedom that the Sadducees, with which they took away from the Word of God, that, that we can then add to the Word of God. And the problem is, is when the Word of God no longer is the foundation for what, uh, what we believe, then you never know if your legalism is enough. And, and then uh, you will have the potential to go crazy with, with uh, your legalistic demands as a mark of spirituality until ultimately the legalistic system becomes so impossible to keep, uh, so all-encompassing in terms of, of a life that it just simply crushes people under the weight of it. And Jesus recognized this to be uh, true in speaking to the Pharisees in his day in Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. He said of them, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Some of you are familiar with Matthew chapter 23, and uh, it is the great chapter where uh, Jesus denounces the scribes and the Pharisees. And he repeatedly denounced the scribes and the Pharisees with a, a phrase. And the phrase was, woe to you, scribes, uh, Pharisees, uh, hypocrites. And of all of the things that Jesus could uh, denounce them for, in their legalism, all of the many, many things that he could bring to the forefront, what he brought to the forefront in denouncing them was the hypocrisy that legalism always produces within uh, people. He denounced the all legalism uh, as, a, 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 this, a, a, the, the, as an intrusion of man's wisdom uh, into Christianity. And when man takes and introduces legalism into Christianity, makes the demands and the commands of God more demanding than they already are, it never produces a peace-filled a disciple of Jesus Christ, but all it ever produces are frustrated, uh, exhausted actors. And that's what uh, the word hypocrite means. It means an actor, someone who wears a mask. And most often legalism deals with the outward, how we present ourselves outwardly to the neglect of what we are inwardly. We already sang the song today, this morning, about God changing us from the inside out. Legalism operates in the opposite uh, direction and only from the inside out uh, ultimately works. And one of the reasons that when a person gets involved in a, 
in a legalistic system. There are people who thrive in that environment. They are born Pharisees. They are born legalists. And they will rise to the top in those environments and go years in them. But then there are others who endeavor to obey all of these uh, traditions and uh, legalistic requirements, and they collapse ultimately. And one of the reasons is because God supplies the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives as Christians in order to obey His commandments, gives us the power to do that. But He does not supply us the power of His Holy Spirit in order to engage in legalism. Legalism must always be accomplished in the strength of the flesh. And, uh, and so, ultimately, the demands of legalism will increase and increase and increase until even the most uh, uh, of, uh, zealous of people trying to please God will collapse under the weight of it. And this kind of legalism almost always, as I said, emphasizes our outward life to the neglect of the inward life. And then what happens then is there's this great gulf that occurs, a great gap between the kind of person I present myself to be spiritually outwardly and the actual person that I am inside uh, spiritually. That's the divide. That's where the hypocrisy comes. That's where the acting uh, comes into play. And the greater the gap between how I present myself and what I actually am spiritually, then it is to, that is to the degree uh, to which I will lose all peace and all joy in my uh, Christian life. Another problem with legalism, this, these uh, man-originated ideas about how to be truly spiritual, how to really uh, please God, is that ultimately the legalist will come up with so many laws and so many uh, rules that it ends up taking all of your time uh, to keep them. And, uh, and, and your entire focus becomes on keeping all of these laws and traditions and rules. And the reason this great separation occurs between uh, I, my inner man, who I am really spiritually, becomes a dwarf compared to what I present myself to outwardly, is that legalism ends up requiring so much attention and so much maintenance related to the external that I have nothing left with which to nurture uh, the inner man and, uh, and nurture my relationship with God. Legalism always reduces Christianity to a formula. And uh, I end up investing my entire life into this formula of do's uh, and don'ts. And ultimately, what I will find myself in the place of uh, over the long haul is I develop a, re a relationship with the formula 
rather than a relationship with God at, uh, at all. And so my relationship with Christ or my relationship with him in some denomination or non-denomination uh, is focused entirely upon doing these things rather than just being free to grow in our relationship uh, with, uh, with the Lord. And one of the reasons that we uh, gravitate toward uh, legalism, one of the reasons a formula is very appealing to us, even as Christians, is that a formula, a relationship with a formula, is much easier and less demanding than a relationship with another person, and even a relationship with God. Now, it's nowhere near fulfilling. It will ultimately bury you. But any relationship that is meaningful with another person involves time and investment. And you can jettison all of that and just have a relationship with a, with a legalistic uh, formula. And it streamlines a life, but it's no way to prepare for heaven and it's a horrible rep, uh, misrepresentation of Christianity altogether. Let me also say that it is important for each of us to understand that legalism appeals to us. It appeals to our flesh to varying degrees, depending upon our personalities or our background, but it appeals to all of us. And I would contend that, uh, it is, uh, that it is our default position in life. There's nothing in the world that operates the way the kingdom of God does, the way Christianity does. On the basis of grace, obeying God uh, out of a motivation of gratitude and love for how good God has been uh, to us. And so we gradually gravitate to rules, uh, to laws, to these kind of things, unless we stay very alert to uh, that, that fact in our lives. Uh, and, and it is this alertness that the Apostle Paul is trying uh, to produce within our lives here. Now, you notice in these verses that Paul addresses four areas of legalism uh, specifically. And uh, apparently, among other things, these false teachers were attempting to bring the church at Colossae, uh, though made uh, up largely of Gentiles, to bring them back under the law of Moses. Uh, pertaining to circumcision, verse 11, uh, to baptism uh, or mikvahs in verses 12 and 13, uh, to the law of Moses in general and the Ten Commandments in, in particular in verses 14 and 15, and then the observance of, of dietary restrictions and special days in verse 16. Concerning circumcision in verse 11, Physical circumcision was a sign of the covenant made between God and the descendants of Abraham, uh, of, of the Jews, as it's recorded in Genesis chapter 17. And what it represented physically, this physical circumcision was, it was a physical reminder to Abraham and his descendants that God would establish his covenant with Abraham just as he had promised. Genesis chapter 12, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be uh, blessed. 
And this covenant of this, this rite of circumcision uh, was a given as an evidence of the fact that God would make Abraham the father of many nations, Genesis chapter 17, and that ultimately the children of Israel would come to possess and inhabit the land of Canaan, the promised land, as that is declared in Genesis chapter 17 as well. What, the law, what circumcision uh, represented spiritually uh, is significant in the Old Testament as well. And the cutting away of the flesh in that way, it, it communicated and, 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 and symbolized uh, the cutting away of the flesh. And that the Jewish people were not to be ruled by the flesh, but they were to be ruled by God. Uh, it was an outward symbol of their hearts, that their hearts were no longer dominated by uh, their flesh. And all of this is a common theme in the Old Testament. Moses wrote of it in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. He said, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no more. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God, Moses again, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. God spoke through Jeremiah in the, uh, among the prophets. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, and God declared to uh, the Jewish people, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, Paul declares to us in this context here, uh, he declares to us that just as physical circumcision made the Jewish people unique and different from everyone else in the world, what makes us different from all of the other people in the world as Christians is not physical circumcision, but a spiritual one. The circumcision of our hearts, where our hearts are no longer dominated by the flesh, no longer dominated by sin, but now dominated by the Holy Spirit. And it is this spiritual circumcision that makes us unique as Christians in all of the world. It's a, and it makes us unique in a way that is far deeper than any physical circumcision. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, you might think to yourself, well, uh, when did this spiritual circumcision uh, occur uh, in my life as a Christian? And it's an outstanding uh, question. It occurred when we trusted in Jesus for salvation and we were born again by the Holy Spirit. And then, as it's there in verse 11, then this circumcision not made with hands, and you notice this circumcision is not a physical one, it's not made with hands, it's a miracle of God. At that moment of being born again, that circumcision, that spiritual circumcision was performed. Now you notice in verse 11 that 
that phrase, uh, by the circumcision of Christ. And that is not a reference to Jesus' physical uh, circumcision, but it's a reference to his death upon the cross. Because as you go into uh, verses 12 and 13, it moves then into uh, Jesus' uh, uh, his, his, uh, uh, burial. It then moves into the subject of, of his resurrection. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Paul's addressing all of it progressively and how it, it, it applies uh, uh, to us. And when it talks about the circumcision of Christ, this refers to his cutting. It refers to his being cut off at Calvary. It refers to his violent death upon that cross at, at uh, uh, Calvary. And Paul was saying to the church at Colossae and to us that we have been partakers of a far greater circumcision by virtue of being born again a spiritual circumcision, and as a result, to refuse to be drawn into the thinking that we need a physical circumcision in order to be pleasing to God. Now, he moves on to baptism in verse 12, and it appears that the false teachers were trying to get the Christians there in Colossae uh, involved in the Jewish traditions associated with the mikvah or with the ritual uh, baths. Uh, both in those days and today, uh, Jewish people will engage in what is called a, uh, a mikvah. And they will have a pool of water within their home in much the same way somebody may have a hot tub only. It's a completely different configuration, one in which you can step down a series of steps and be immersed in, in the water. And so uh, the Jews will undress. You do it individually, privately. You undress completely. There's to be nothing between you and God. And you go down into the water. You immerse yourself completely for a ceremonial uh, cleansing. And in ancient times, very often a Jew would do that at their home before they went to the temple to worship the Lord, or, or they would do it at the temple area itself where mikvahs uh, were provided for ceremonial uh, cleansing. And uh, the engagement in this kind of baptism or this immersion was done on the part of, of Jews in order to express their desire to approach God now with a cleansed heart, a cleansed mind, a cleansed uh, soul. But Paul reminds the Christians in Colossae, and again us, that Christ in our identification with uh, his uh, death, his burial, his resurrection, in putting our faith in him for salvation, that we have been made far more than ceremonially uh, clean before God, but we have been cleansed of all of our sin, as you see in verse 13, forgiven all our trespasses. And Paul speaks of this in the context of, uh, of baptism and all of it's represented in baptism. At one time, we were dead in our sins 
And when a person is put down under the water and uh, the water covers them in a baptism, it represents our spiritually dead condition before God. Unable to save ourselves or to lift ourselves up out of that spiritually dead uh, condition. But because of our faith in Christ, God has raised us up out of that spiritually dead condition as you're raised up in water baptism out of, uh, of the water and, uh, and we are raised with the same power uh, spiritually in being born again. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and now we are raised into spiritual life with the same power that raised of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ uh, from uh, the dead. And so the, in water baptism, uh, all of this, uh, the immersion uh, portrays this burial with Christ coming up out of the water, uh, depicts uh, the resurrection by the power of God now uh, to live a different kind of life. God has come into my life to give me now the not only the forgiveness of sins, but the power to live a different kind uh, of life. And not to continue as... <clears throat> It was apparently being advocated in, in uh, Colossae not to continue in the sinning and going to the mikvah. Sinning mikvah. Sinning mikvah. Sinning mikvah as a, uh, a, a standard uh, and practice for life. But when we were born again, we received the forgiveness of, of sins. The Holy Spirit then came into our lives so that we would not find it necessary to continue to live the life that we once lived before we were born again, but now to live an entirely different uh, quality uh, of, uh, of life. And in, uh, that is in saving us, Jesus didn't just forgive us of our sins, leave us powerless to be forgiven, 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 but still utterly dominated by sin and the sins within our lives. Uh, but he saved us and gave us the, the power to live a life of victory, uh, to live a life like his. And, and uh, uh, Paul moves on in verses 14 and 15 and speaks concerning the third of the four things that were, were being brought before these uh, Christians in Colossae, and that is uh, they were being told that they needed to keep the law of Moses in general and the Ten Commandments in, in particular. And, and here they're telling uh, the Christians there, the false teachers were, that they needed to do that as a necessary mark, again, of spirituality, a badge of spirituality to really prove that you love God and you want to be used by Him and make a difference uh, uh, for Him, really serious about your relationship with God. And in doing this, the false teachers were making the same mistake that the Jewish religious leaders made at the time of Jesus. They were turning the law of Moses completely on its head. And they were getting the law of Moses exactly backwards, thinking that God had given the law of Moses to mankind as a means by which we could work our way to heaven. We could obey our way to heaven. We could keep the law of Moses uh, to heaven. We could establish a righteousness before God on the basis of the law of Moses in order to get into heaven. 
and that the law of Moses was given by God to man as a means of producing a satisfactory righteousness uh, that uh, we can accomplish on our own before uh, on the basis of our human effort and one day uh, be ushered into uh, the white-hot holiness uh, of, of heaven. But the law of Moses was never given with that intent. And the law of Moses was given for the purpose of condemning us as sinners, of convicting us as sinners, as exposing us as sinners, not only before God, but exposing us as sinners before ourselves. So we would recognize not only that we sin, but why do we sin? Uh, our problem is deeper than the fact that we simply sin. It is, uh, there is a nature that, uh, that pushes me towards sin that I've been uh, uh, born with. And what the law of Moses did, it was intended to constantly confront, uh, confront us with uh, uh, our sin and, and uh, continually remind us of the fact that you cannot earn your way into heaven and remind us that we are in need of a Savior to prepare us for the Savior that God would send into the world so that we would then put our trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins to receive a righteousness that the only righteousness is acceptable in heaven. And of course, that Savior uh, is Jesus. No one, no one has any hope of keeping the law of Moses. Paul writes in another epistle, and he says, you who want to keep the law of Moses, have you read the law of Moses? Nobody can read the law of Moses and think that any of us would have any hope of keeping, uh, uh, keeping it as a means of establishing self-righteousness. Only Jesus has kept the law of Moses in order to fulfill it on, uh, on our uh, behalf. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He said, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have, uh, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may, might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh can be justified. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, after we're born again, uh, we are no longer under a tutor. And that's why Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. In other words, you read the law of Moses and you think that you can find everlasting life in keeping the law of Moses, but you can't do it. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify uh, of me. And once we become a Christian, the law of Moses is taken out of the way. And uh, having been fulfilled uh, by Jesus, 
It has now done its job as the schoolmaster to take us by the hand in our guilt and condemnation and deliver us to Christ. It has nothing else to bring uh, into our lives in, uh, in, in that regard. And so Paul informs them and he informs us that for having uh, become Christians, Jesus, verse 14, uh, has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. And he's talking about the law of Moses here. And he, and he makes it very plain how to understand the law of Moses. It was against us. It condemned us. It exposed us as sinners. And so Paul writes here, uh, verse 14, he said, has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary uh, to us, and that Jesus has taken it out of the way, having nailed it uh, to the cross. Now, the imagery of nailing the law of Moses to a cross Paul is, remember this was written at the time of the Roman Empire, he is using imagery that everyone is familiar with. When a person would be executed for capital crime uh, by crucifixion uh, in the Roman Empire, they would place a placard on the cross above the head of the criminal. And upon that placard, they would list the capital crime or crimes that that criminal had committed uh, for which they were now uh, being executed uh, with the desire that it would be a deterrent, uh, that anyone young and old would w walk by. Everyone, of course, would have a curiosity after looking at the person on the cross to then look up and see what in the world do you have to do to end up on a cross like that and then read the charges. And the idea was that it would be an education for people that they would then look at that and say, okay, I don't want to do those things because if you do those things, you end up dying on, uh, on a, a, a cross. And so that's the imagery that was used. And the idea here is that Jesus took the charges against us individually and collectively as Christians. The charges that were against us, the charges that would have hung above our heads if uh, we had been on the cross, the condemnation of the law of Moses within our lives, uh, exposing us as sinners, condemning us to death, and he bore every one of those charges uh, himself upon the cross. In other words, in being forgiven, no Christian has gotten away with any sin that we have committed. Uh, gee, uh, somebody paid a price for that sin. Uh, uh, for every violation of the law of Moses and more. And Jesus is the one who paid the price for all of them. As the psalmist puts, it says that uh, righteousness and peace have kissed uh, in him. Now, while Paul is on the subject of the cross in verse 15, he declared that on that cross, Jesus disarmed powers and principalities. And here he's talking about the demonic realm, Satan and the entire demonic horde that followed him in his rebellion against God. And, uh, and, and, and having 
come and disarm the powers and the principalities, declaring that Jesus can never, uh, or the devil can never successfully bring an accusation against us before God as Christians. Uh, he can bring an accusation. He does bring accusations against us all of the time, but he cannot do it successfully. No Christian, uh, Paul is saying, has anything to fear related to uh, the devil. First uh, John four uh, four. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in uh, the world. And the only authority that uh, the devil possesses in the life of a Christian uh, is the authority that we give him uh, if we believe any of his lies that he speaks into our uh, lives. And Jesus not only defeated the devil and his demons at Calvary, but Paul tells us he made an open display of them. Uh, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus openly exposed the entire uh, demonic realm for being defeated in, in human history. And again, the imagery here is entirely Roman. And, he's, and Paul is referring to something that uh, everyone that's reading this letter would have been entirely familiar with. A, it's what is known as a Roman triumph. When you would have a Roman general go out uh, onto one of the frontiers of the Roman Empire and defeat a very, very significant enemy uh, to the, the uh, Roman Empire, uh, then they would be granted this thing called a Roman triumph, and it was the right then for the general in a, uh, in a chariot uh, to then make his way through the streets of Rome, all of his armies to follow behind him, and then all of these wagons that carried the loot and all uh, from the defeat of the enemy, and then ultimately bringing up the end in shackles would be the remnant of the em enemy army and the king of that uh, enemy in shackles as well. And and for Rome here, it wasn't enough to just simply defeat an enemy and then go quietly on uh, about your business. The Roman uh, Empire needed to know that this enemy had been utterly shamed, utterly uh, defeated, and no longer posed a threat. And what was true in terms of a celebration within the Roman Empire is true within the kingdom of God. And that recognition that this great enemy that we once faced in the form of the devil and the demonic realm has been openly and completely defeated by Jesus on the cross of Calvary. He has no power or ultimate authority against an individual Christian or against the kingdom of God uh, as uh, a whole. And uh, Satan is a defeated foe. And because he is, if the Romans were smart enough to celebrate a victory like that with a Roman triumph, then we want to celebrate that a greater truth concerning the devil in our own lives as Christians. And then finally, he talks about the observance of uh, dietary restrictions and special days in verse 16. So clearly, the false teachers here in Colossae 
they were uh, telling the Christians in Colossae that they needed to come back under the law of Moses in terms of what you could eat, what you could drink, in terms of honoring uh, high and holy days under, uh, under the old covenant. And again, as a badge of spirituality, as, a, as an indicator of being really serious as, as a Christian and about the things of God. Concerning the food and drink, the Old Testament law, of course, it provided famously, or it prohibited famously, uh, the eating of pork, uh, shellfish, and many, many uh, other things as well. And because Jesus has fulfilled the law uh, of of Moses, uh, as Christians, we're no longer under those, uh, we're not under those uh, uh, restrictions at all. Paul wrote in in the First Timothy chapter four, all foods are created by God and to be received with thanksgiving. Now, this kind of legalism related to food and drink, it's present even uh, still today, uh, even though they have kind of softened in re- recent years. Uh, Ellen G. White, who was the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, strongly discouraged uh, the eating of meat among uh, Seventh-day Adventists and uh, she did so on the basis of a vision that she felt that she had received uh, from uh, the Lord. And uh, Colossians chapter 2 is a chapter uh, when I was a new Christian in Napa, California, uh, and doing a lot of street witnessing because Angwin, just to the north, is a center for Seventh-day Adventism. We're always uh, talking to Seventh-day Adventism uh, Adventists about these kind of issues and talking about these things from uh, from the chapter, uh, on the basis of a, also on the basis of a claim of uh, divine inspiration given to him in uh, 1833, Joseph Smith, who was the founder uh, of Mormonism, uh, to this day Mormons are prohibited from drinking coffee or tea, even green tea. And iced coffees are out too, and iced uh, teas, anything having to do with it, are for, uh, forbidden. Concerning the special uh, Jewish holy days, uh, G- uh, Paul makes reference to festivals, to new moons, and to Sabbaths. And when he refers to festivals, he's referring to the yearly feasts of the Jews. Uh, when he talks about uh, the new moons, those were monthly celebrations in the Law of Moses. The Sabbath, of course, was a weekly uh, celebration under the Law of Moses. And this kind of honoring of special days uh, is uh, present with us even today. Again, the Seventh-day Adventists come to the forefront related to this and um, their uh, teaching that Saturday is the day to worship, the seventh day, the Sabbath day, rather than uh, uh, Sunday. And they do that in accordance with the Law of Moses, in accordance with the Old Testament. Um, every oh, handful of years in the city of Modesto, I'm sure it's true everywhere, but there is a, this kind of wave that goes through Modesto as a whole and then the churches as a result. And you've got uh, things like uh, the Hebrew Roots Movement or something that's like that. And uh, they'll endeavor to convince Christians that a deeper Christian life is found in observing the Old Testament laws or uh, observing uh, the Old Testament practices. And they start to pull uh, Christians back into the practice uh, of these kind of things. And it's just what Paul is uh, forbidding here 
in this letter. Now, let me be careful to, uh, to clarify on this. When a group, of, a legitimate group, like a, a Jews for Jesus, comes to a church like this, and they do a uh, Christ in the Passover presentation, they are never advocating that someone come under the law of Moses or begin to practice these feasts themselves. What they are doing is showing how all of these feasts were shadows and types that represented uh, the substance here that, that is Christ, and there's nothing wrong with handling it in that, uh, that kind of order. And so uh, Paul speaks here in terms of those trying to bring people back under the law of Moses or any kind of legalism, and he just says bluntly, let no one pass judgment on you. And of course, that's what a legalist will always do, is judge you on the basis of whether you are keeping uh, the legalism that they have decided has to be kept. And then there's the shaming and there's the excluding and the isolation and all of the religious bullying that goes on uh, typically in a legalistic uh, environment. And so uh, Paul says, no, you don't, uh, don't let anyone push you around in this way. Uh, let no one pass judgment on you. And uh, uh, don't yield to these people. You need to stand up to them. And then uh, Paul very briefly makes his final point in verse 17 by declaring that even these legalisms that come out of the Old Testament, he says they are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so Jesus is the substance, he is the reality, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament shadows and types and pictures that were represented in the dietary laws, in all of the feasts and all of uh, the sacrifices. And so Paul is saying, why would I still want to, as a Christian, invest my life in what are mere shadows of a coming Messiah when the Messiah has already come and as opposed to engaging in a relationship with him and all of the realities that he has brought into his human history through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And when I come uh, home in, 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 to my wife Karen in the evening, I never make a beeline to my office and stare at uh, some picture of her in, in my office. And the reason that I don't deal with the shadow, the type, the picture, the photo, is because the real complete her is available for conversation and interaction and relationship in the other room. We would think a person to be mad if they engaged in a relationship with someone significant in their life by virtue of types and pictures if the real person was sitting in the other room. And Paul is saying it's spiritual madness to do uh, the same thing with legalism in our relationship to the Lord. And so the theme of the book of Colossians is the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the centrality of Christ in the Christian life. And it reassures us that the Christianity that Jesus has provided us 
It simply cannot be improved upon, not by man-originating philosophy, not by man-originating legalism. And every minute that's invested in legalism of this kind robs us of a minute that could be better spent investing it in our relationship with Him and enjoying our relationship with Him. And Jesus did not introduce Himself, leave the indescribable glory of heaven, and introduce Himself into human history in His incarnation, live and minister here for 33 years, die on the cross, be buried, rise again on the third day, and then ultimately ascend to the right hand of the Father in order to provide mankind with just one more legalistic religion. He doesn't want the help, and he doesn't need the help, and he knows it. And Paul knows it. And now we know it too, thanks to what Paul has laid out here. Again, verse 16, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you, as we do so often, just for the unmistakable clarity of your word and really the force and power of Paul's argument here. We readily uh, acknowledge the attraction that formulas uh, uh, are to us, that legalism is to us, how easy we can fall prey to these kind of things to one degree or another. And we thank you for how wonderfully Paul not only tells us we have the freedom to disregard it, but to indeed disregard it uh, in force and to not miss the substance, to miss you, Jesus, for some kind of legalistic thing that people have come up with in their own noggins. And we pray that you would use this time this morning to free every single one of us within earshot of this teaching, free every one of us from any bondage to legalism that someone is trying to bring into our lives or that is a part of some religious system we were once a part of, Lord, and use it to bring us into full freedom to explore and enjoy our relationship with you. And we pray that you would use this time in your word to forever protect us from falling prey to this kind of a seduction the rest of our pilgrimage. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.